0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: Many of us have heard of the brutal lynching of Emmett Till. Back in 1955, a white woman named Carolyn Bryant Donham accused Till of making advances toward her. Her husband and an accomplice abducted, tortured, and murdered the 14-year-old child. Emmett Till's murderers were acquitted by an all-white jury. His murder helped catalyze the civil rights movement in part thanks to the black press. Publications like Jet Magazine and the Chicago Defender brought widespread national attention to Till's violent murder. They published photos of his body. When asked why she refused to change seats on that bus, Rosa Parks later said, "'I thought of Emmett Till and I couldn't go back.'" This is Disrupted, I'm Kalilah Brown-Dean. Today, we reflect on the importance of the Black press in U.S. history. According to the Library of Congress, there have been more than 3,000 African-American newspapers since the first one appeared back in 1827. Here to tell us more about that history is Professor Trevi McDonald. She's Associate Professor of Broadcast and Electronic Journalism at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina. Professor, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. You know, we want to talk with you about the black press and the the many contours of the black press, the ways that it plays such a prominent role. But I want to start with the basics, because everyone may not be aware when we use the term black press, what exactly do we mean?
0: I'm glad that you asked that question. Um, I would define the black press as media outlets that are owned, um, published and even produced by African Americans for an African American audience. So produced,
2: created by African Americans for African American audiences. And many people may ask why that's significant. And I don't think we can really address that without looking at the history of the black press. You actually teach a course that walks students through that so they can see how the development of the black press really aligns with the development of black presence within the United States. What's sort of the key theme that you focus on within the class and something that perhaps your students may be surprised to learn?
0: Okay, yes. So I take them back to the Revolutionary War. Um, you had a point in time where the vast majority of people of African descent in this country were enslaved. And you also had people who were free, like Crispus Attucks, who was the first person to die in the American Revolution. And there were other men of color who served in the Continental Army um, fighting for freedom, but yet uh, people of color and Black people specifically were not free. Um, Also, at this time, Black people, we're talking 18th century, early 19th century, they were not participants in news discourse, yet they knew that things were being written about them. So in 1827, a man named Boston Crummel held a meeting in New York and a lot of Black leaders from the Eastern Seaboard attended that meeting to just address some of those concerns Uh, in terms of how to address discrimination and how to address things like slanderous coverage of black people in papers like the New York Inquirer by Mordecai Noah. And that's when Freedom's Journal was born. The first issue was published on March 16th, 1827. And in the very first issue, John Russworm and Samuel Cornish wrote a letter to their readers and in it, they said, We wish to plead our own cause. Too long have others spoken for us, and too long has the public been deceived by misrepresentations in things that concern us dearly. A sense of
2: voice and agency is essential to freedom, not just the physical manifestation of freedom, but the freedom to live and be for communities that are often overlooked or mischaracterized, as you mentioned in that What are your students surprised by? Uh, What would you say is the thing that when you address it in the class, they're like, wait a minute, I never learned about that. Or how can
0: that be possible? How, where do I even start with that? Because I've been teaching this class since 2013. And every time I teach it, I learn something new. So I always ask the students for top news stories. And in 2013, one of the students said the 13th Amendment was just ratified by Mississippi yesterday. And I said, no way. But she was actually right. Um, the black press really served an advocacy role. So we, we, we look at people like Frederick Douglass, who was the first black newspaper publisher to own his own printing press, who advocated for the abolition of slavery through his papers, The North Star, and then later Frederick Douglass's paper. They learn about people like Marianne Shad Carey, who was the first Black woman newspaper editor in North America who encouraged Black people to leave the United States and migrate to what was then called Canada West. They learn about um, Faubourg-Tremé, which was a, in the 18th century, a community of free Black people in New Orleans. And out of that community, uh, Dr. Louis Charles Roudiné started two newspapers during the Civil War. The first was Lunion, and the second was the New Orleans Tribune, which became the first black daily newspaper in the country. And it advocated for things like suffrage. The New Orleans Tribune lasted from 1864 until about 1870. So you have sort of a time when the um, 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are um, entering our U.S. Constitution. Um, They advocated for integrated schools and uh, also, and this is really important, the election of black men to state offices in Louisiana.
2: I want to bring in here, of course, the pioneering journalist, Ida B. Wells. And so in 2022, when Mattel released this Barbie honoring Ida B. Wells, a lot of people said, you know, why? Who is that? Who is this inspiring woman? And we know how essential she was to the anti-lynching movements and using the Black press. What is the role of Ida B. Wells within this sort of freedom telling that you've mentioned of to be a Black woman
0: telling these stories? Why is she so significant? I think of Ida B. Wells as one of the first investigative journalists. Um, She lived in Memphis. She was the editor and co-owner of a newspaper called the Memphis free speech, and headlight, and had friends who were grocery store owners. And these friends' store um, was actually in competition with a white-owned store. And that, of course, caused some friction, and these three men were lynched. But at the time, there was this narrative that was prevalent that black men were being lynched for violating white white womanhood. And Ida B. Wells called that an old threadbare lie. Her newspaper was burned to the ground. She was pretty much run out of Memphis and did not return for a very long time. But she did some investigation and published a pamphlet in October of 1892 called Southern Horrors Lynch Law in all its phases. Let's talk about where you
2: are. You're located in North Carolina. North Carolina has a history of uh, not just racist violence, but also an emphasis on what this means for the people across the state, but really across the country. And one of the ways that we see this confluence of racist violence and the importance of the Black press and telling the story in its fullness happened back in 1898 with the Wilmington massacre. For our listeners who may not be familiar, you know, give us highlight what happened in that massacre, how important was the Black press, not just in telling the story, but also countering many of the white-owned newspapers that were stoking the violence that happened in 1898.
0: Absolutely. So just a little bit about Wilmington. It was the most important city in North Carolina. It was a port city. 56% of the residents in Wilmington were Black. They were literate, they had a thriving black middle class. There were doctors, lawyers, police officers, and even two black fire companies. And then at the same time, there was the political climate in North Carolina was such that the Democrats had been defeated because the Republicans and the Populists merged and had an agreement that they would work together uh, to elect um, each other's candidates to so that the democrats would lose power in the state so after a couple of elections 1894 1896 they you know just were really looking for the democrats were looking for ways to regain the power so one of the things that happened was a negro domination propaganda campaign and that was played out through political cartoons in the raleigh news and observer The year prior, a woman named Rebecca Felton gave a speech to the Georgia Agricultural Society where she talked about, again, white women's virtue and that these black men were raping them and that she says lynch a thousand times a week if necessary. So. The white newspapers actually published this leading up to the 1898 election. And a man named Alex Manley wrote a reply and he basically said, you know, these are consensual relationships. And he also talked about the fact that a lot of these uh, black men who were being accused of rape had white fathers. So uh, some of the papers called it like a horrid slander or vile and villainous. And there were lots of other elements. There was a militia group called the Red Shirt, but it all centered around the November, 1898 election. And Manley's newspaper was burned to the ground. And actually the mob posed for a photo in the shell of the building. And you had, I think one third of the aldermen in Wilmington were black. They were run out of town. Uh, They talked about like kind of escaping through some of the swampy areas to leave town and um, leave safety. And this is very significant because this insurrection is the only successful coup d'etat in U.S. history. And going back to my students, they're upset that they're taking an elective in college before they learn about this very significant event in our history. What do we need to know
2: about the role of the Black press in not only telling nationally what happened to Emmett Till, but also highlighting, this is the the young man, young boy's name that we know. There are so many other instances that don't make the news. What was the role of the black press there?
0: So the the black press really played a monumental role uh, in not only Emmett Till's murder and trial, but in the civil rights movement. Uh, In my class, I have students pair into teams of two and each team is assigned a key event during the civil rights movement. One person researches how it was covered in the mainstream press. One person researches how it was covered in the black press. And a lot of times in the mainstream press, you don't even know the names of the people involved. So the black press really humanized the people involved and just told the story from from a, a different angle and a different perspective.
2: In this moment where we are seeing the shrinking of newsrooms broadly, particularly local-based, community-based news outlets. As we are seeing this shrinking, we are seeing greater attention. You know, my students tell me they get the bulk of their news from uh, Instagram and other sort of social media formats. Do you think that provides a new avenue for Black press to be able to distribute info via social media, Or are you concerned that the dominance of social media and how we acquire and interact with news may overshadow the role of these traditional Black press outlets
0: and journalists? First, I think of it as as being content and content that's now being distributed to people through electronic means. And at the same time, I think it's important for people to understand media literacy so that they can determine uh, information and what is mis or disinformation. And then the other thing that I wanna share that I'm really excited about, a tech developer in the Raleigh-Durham area has created an app called the Haytai app. It's spelled H-A-Y-T-I.com, and it's a news aggregator. And he has over 200 black newspapers and I think over 2000 black podcasts. And he created the app as a way to try to help keep Black newspapers and Black media outlets more sustainable.
2: I want to ask you one last question. What is the thing as we look toward the future that you would say we really need to pay attention to when we think about the future of the Black press?
0: I think about a lot of what I I teach my students, and that's about being adaptable. Um, Those technologies are going to change. But the concepts sort of remain the same. And I just think as a whole, we will become more open to utilizing information and receiving information from, from just different types of platforms.
2: Trevier McDonald is Associate Professor of Broadcast and Electronic Journalism at the University of North Carolina. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. When we return, a co founder of Capital B, a Black led nonprofit, local, and national news organization, talks about finding ways to sustain local news today. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Now that we've heard some of the history, let's look forward at how black publications are changing journalism today. Okoto Aforiata is co-founder and chief audience officer at the nonprofit newsroom Capital B. Ask Okoto to tell us more about our organization.
4: Yeah, so Capital B is a local and national news organization uh, doing reporting for black communities across the country. And in our local newsroom, our first local newsroom in Atlanta. Um, we cover politics, health, um, criminal justice as well, with the additional um, element of community listening and engagement that really fuels the reporting that we're doing. So our local newsrooms have a community engagement editor whose primary function is to listen to what Black residents are saying about like, what they need to know, what they're confused about what they are curious about, what their information gaps are, bring that information back to the newsroom um, and have an exchange with reporters so that they can then look into these issues for the community um, and do reporting that is really responsive to what community is saying. So and yeah, Capital B was was born out of a moment in 2020 where um, my co-founder Lauren Williams and I had just been you know, fed up with the way mainstream media had uh, misrepresented, miscalculated, and even caused harm over decades and decades to um, Black Americans and felt like it was the right time for us to strike out and see how we can make journalism, reporting, information sharing uh, better for Black people. Um, particularly at this moment in time where there are so many many threats to our well-being, our citizenship, our, our, our sense of belonging. We exist because we believe that when there are challenges, journalism, good journalism can be part of the solution.
2: I think community often gets overlooked when we're thinking about the importance of telling the stories, who's telling the stories and how those stories are told. And even what some people may see as basic or throwaway, the fact that you intentionally capitalized the letter B when you were talking about black people and black communities, walk us through that very intentional decision that as you are talking about community, you have to affirm the words yes, of that community.
4: Absolutely. So, you know, if you're not um if you're not in journalism, journalism or media, um, you may not remember a time in 2020 where in response to George Floyd and COVID and Breonna Taylor, uh, newsrooms are sort of grappling with like, their complicity in, you know, the history of racism in this country, grappling with their, how they are, Black people are grossly misrepresented or underrepresented rather in the actual newsrooms. And so everyone was trying to figure out what to do. And one of the things that became a big conversation starter was like, is it time to capitalize the word black because in AP style, which is the style book that most newsrooms use, it was lowercase. And, um, you know, to be to be honest, my co-founder and I were quite skeptical of that because it, yes, I think it's important to capitalize, but it is an easy thing for, you know, white-led news organizations to just implement and feel really good about it. For them to have like some outs, for it to feel like an outsized thing that they've done and accomplished, when like the real work is like making sure you're producing equitable journalism, hiring more diverse candidates, like that is the real work. And sort of this, I I felt like, you know, it was positioned as like a cosmetic thing. However, the intent behind it, the belief that black people as a culture, black people in this country have had such an important role in preserving our democracy, perfecting this nation, are such an important and, you know, in such an important cultural force that, you know, we deserve to be recognized on that scale and sort of getting that respect for um, who we are. And what we do and what we accomplish. And so from that perspective, we were like, you know what, this makes sense for us um, because of Capital B, we are, you know, inherently we believe that we that we need more, deserve more, require more, demand more because of all that we've done. And the idea of centering Black voices, the idea of, you know. Really fiercely targeting and reporting for Black communities unapologetically. Anybody else who reads our work, great. It's very important. I believe that people, you know, of all races, can get something from <laughs> Capital B. I believe if you're someone who believes in, who wants a, a a freer and and more fair future, that reading Capital B is absolutely something you should do. But our focus is unapologetically, very intentionally Black, and so naming this organization Capital B just felt right.
2: You not only are moving with intention in terms of affirming voice of saying it can't be the kind of performative acts that we saw in 2020 where everyone wanted to put up a banner or have a program or make a quick donation.
4: The black squares. Right, the the black black squares
2: squares on social media where no one knew what it meant, but they did it because they didn't want to be the outsider. We have now, in, in many ways, Many organizations, news outlets have moved on from what happened in 2020 and decided to tell other stories. So you not only are continuing the need to tell community-based stories, you are also doing it in a very different way from what we see with other news outlets at a time when local journalism is often shrinking, those local-based stories why decide to use the nonprofit model and how do you think that helps you advance the goals that you mentioned of what you Mm -hmm. want to accomplish with intention at capital B?
4: Yeah. So when Lauren and I were building, you know, you know, when you're creating something new, there's lots to consider. What is it going to be? How are we going to fund it? And one of the key things that we, you know, clocked in on was that one um, local news is really struggling for so many reasons since the rise of the internet rise of social media um, rise of craigslist as part as part of that um, really impacted newspapers bottom line when you can um, when an industry who had been dependent on selling advertising um, for so long then gets disrupted by the internet and social media and and, and companies being able to you know do digital targeting of the people they want to reach newspapers are just less a less attractive place to spend your money and so the result of that has been a huge, huge loss of local news across the country. Um, 50% of local of local journalists, I think, in the last 15 years have been uh, no longer have jobs. Um, anecdotally, I think, you know, many of us remember being younger and having a local newspaper that was this thick. Um, and, you know, now they're very, very thin. There are many, many, many counties across the country that don't have a local newspaper at all. And so what does that mean? It means that people don't know what's going on in their communities. It means that people who are in power um, don't have anyone watching what they're doing. And often what they're doing is happening under like, you know, behind closed doors where there's no transparency. Um, It means that because people don't know what's going on, that sense of community, that sense of belonging um, has really been impacted. And so we knew the challenges of for-profit media and like what the the rise of the internet has meant for that and we knew that we would need to to be in order to be accomplishing our mission we were going to be telling stories and doing editorial projects that like advertisers wouldn't be clamoring behind you know like there are not too many advertisers who want to you know have their ads running next to packages about inequality racism things that are generally just really jacked up but also really important for us for us to report on because our audience wants to understand. And so nonprofit, going the nonprofit route just made sense for us, um, not only because it allowed us to attract financial support from organizations who were also mission-driven and understood the importance of local news, but also because there's a lot of in journalism, there's a lot of energy in nonprofit media right now and nonprofit local news media specifically. Um, there are, you know, for all of the <clears throat> failures of media, many of which we've just talked about in the last 10 minutes. Um, A real bright spot is what's happening in nonprofit local news, where people are really trying to push the idea that media really needs to be civically minded, civically driven, um, a real public institution that people can trust and participate in. And so for us, it just made sense that we could really do the work that we wanted to do if we're not solely dependent on advertising dollars. That does not mean that we won't sell ads when opportunities arise. It's important for us to have a revenue like a really diverse revenue stream so that we can keep our newsrooms open, <laughs> make sure that we can pay our journalists well. Um, but the difference is that we are not solely reliant on that one that one income stream.
2: I wonder if you feel any tension or any pressure because, often people lament the decline of journalism that it's more about opinion than actual news and investigation and i mean i have my thoughts on the accuracy of that but i do Mm -hmm. wonder whether in telling these stories from the perspectives that you do with intention with a profound respect for community do you feel any tension between those sort of canons of journalism and reporting. And what you say is, look, we shouldn't accept that mainstream media has always done it right or done it well. And we Mm -hmm. preserve that integrity while still telling these stories.
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, and in short, the answer is no. I, you know, we, we knew from the beginning that we, as journalists, there are things about the profession and about the institution of journalism that is noble and meaningful. And the idea that um, information should be free, accurate, fair, that it should watch those in power and see how those in power harm or elevate the people they're working for is a really, really important function for democracy. Um, We also know many of the messed up ways that um, journalism has been harmful and how it's been so profit-driven to the detriment of the public. And when we, we were hiring people, we would say that, like, we need people who understand that there are th- there are traditional things about journalism that we need to hold dear. And there are also things that we must throw away. Um, we must not be a place where editors and journalists are just sort of chasing their own curiosities a massive function that's is is not as prevalent is is sourcing and really getting your story ideas from the things that people actually want to know. Um and that is just so critical. Not just so that we can produce meaningful work for people that they will actually like we know we know you will benefit from this work because it is responsive to something we know that you're curious about. But also because it's going to build trust and you know that is a huge huge thing that's missing. Um, in media, we are faced with a lot of misinformation and disinformation, particularly Black communities. We know that um, around elections um, that there are dark forces that intentionally mislead Black mm-hmm. communities. Black people have been the targets of many dis-, dis and misinformation campaigns around elections, even around COVID. And so we're now at a time where trust in media is low and Black people... Um, are especially harmed by that. And so building trust means doing doing work that we know people are gonna find valuable and that is really important to us.
2: We are approaching the 2024 election. The kinds of issues, policy issues that Capital B covers will be front and center in that election. And not just the presidential election, but a lot of the races happening at the local and state level. As you look ahead, um, What is it that Capital B will be doing to continue building that trust, inspiring media media literacy, and understanding how to wade through all the noise? What's your approach?
4: We have plans to really think about what it means to meaningfully provide a service for helping people understand what is real and what is not. And not just debunking or fact checking, but really trying to put forth a um an ongoing effort to under to to one, you know, as an all-black newsroom, we know why people, why some mistruths feel real to black people, <laughs> right? Like we know why you're hesitant around vaccines, around voting. We get it here's information that you can use to be even more informed about the decisions you're making. Um, And here's information, here's some teaching and some education around how you can spot where something is maybe not as credible as you would like it to be. So that's going to be really key. And we were having a lot of conversations about what that actually will look like, but that's something that we'll definitely be doing. And we're also going to be just focused a lot on Black political power and what it's meant to this nation, What, uh, who's interested in quelling it, what happens when it thrives. These are a lot of themes that we're going to be exploring um, next year.
2: koto Afori Atta is co-founder and chief audience officer at Capital B. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
2: Coming up, we learn about a Harvard newspaper called North End Agents and how they're approaching solutions-oriented journalism this is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're exploring how the Black press has shaped the United States in both the past and the present. We now look to a publication right here in Connecticut. It's the Hartford-based North End Agents. North End Agents is Connecticut's largest and longest published African-American newspaper. Sasha Allen Walton is editor-in-chief, and Indira Allen-Stevens is growth manager of North End Agents. As we spoke, they were enjoying the outdoors in Florida, so you may hear some beautiful birds in the background. Sasha and Indira, welcome to Disrupted.
1: We're happy to be here. Yes,
3: thank you for having us.
2: I'm excited to talk about the work that you two are doing with North End Agents, but I want our listeners to get an understanding of the history because, as we said, longest published African-American newspaper, your father started the paper back in the 1970s. What was the motivation at that point behind starting the paper?
1: So our father had... Come out of the military, had been working for other publications in terms of their delivery and their route. And there was another publication out of Springfield, Mass., that kept delivering late, and he was getting disgusted. And if you knew my father, he spoke his mind at all times. Um, And so he told them about it. And when he told them about it, their editor told him, If you think you can do it, then do it. And it was like a deer. And to know him, he took that deer literally. And within maybe about two or three weeks, there was Northern agents. And it's really interesting. The original logo came from our cousin, Jonathan Bruce, which used to be um, the curator for the gallery on corner of Maine and Albany. And the layout Juan Fuentes, who is an important part of the history of Hartford, especially when you look at the Latinx context, helped him with the photography and begin to design things. The village that he has been a part of helped him push this out. And 49 years later, his daughters are running it.
2: That family legacy is key. But what you just laid out for us also, Sasha, is this was a community endeavor to bring people together across community, across spaces, to create something for community, but also representative of community. And dear, let me bring you in here because I'm curious how that legacy, the legacy of your family, that legacy of a community-based newspaper, how does that influence the work that you're doing now?
3: Growing up with the paper, it was common for me to see both of my parents working on the paper, touching the paper, and um, just pouring back into the community, and so that became just kind of like a way of life for all of us. We would always think about ways we could do something, things we we're gonna volunteer at, um, and we would always have to touch the paper. And so literally the paper is like, a, I don't. it's a part of our identity at this point.
2: What's the importance of having newspapers owned by Black people, telling Black people's stories? In Connecticut in particular, where that kind of history, context, and community often go overlooked. What's the importance of having a Black-owned paper?
1: I don't care where you go in this entire universe, there are Black people. And as we know, Black people have continuously been marginalized. We've always had to have our own form of media to share our narratives, to amplify the issues, to strategize in terms of social justice, community politics. That has not shifted. The medium and the way we do it has shifted even in this day and time. And so for me, what we do is such an intricate part of our community and where we come from. And and it's an act of service and a love for Hartford and the folks around Hartford who need this information. When we show up in a space, we're not just showing up as Northern agents. We're showing up in representation of an entire community. A lot of times that community is not invited to the table. And so when I'm at the table, I'm bringing everybody I can bring to the table. I'm advocating for anyone I can advocate for because I know it's a privilege to be in the room and to be able to say we need A, B, C, and D. And and even if you are not going to listen to we need A, B, C, and D, I've got to write about that and I've got to make sure those narratives are shared Our people cannot continue to not be empowered. North Ages has switched its focus to empowering our community and uplifting and amplifying it. We have a policy where we do not print negative news. So we have to tell hard truths, hard stories, but we have to provide solutions. You are gaslit anywhere else in the world. When you come in this space, it should be a safe, sacred space for you to exist in all the elements of you. That's very important to us that we continue to create safety in that, safety in conversation, safety in dialogue. And even when the writers are not agreeing about what we're talking about, our methods or their methods, we know that that Black and BIPOC people are not one-dimensional. And so we've got to service everyone and we've got to make sure we're hitting all the strong points that we need to hit and that we're also grabbing the underdogs that no one is paying attention to. And dear Sasha, I was struck by what Sasha
2: just said. You do not print negative news. We are inundated with negative news about Black people, about Black communities, particularly in places like Hartford that often get dismissed for the beauty that is there. How important is it for you to tell that holistic story, that holistic picture of Black communities, BIPOC communities, in a way that I think, as Sasha just mentioned... Other publications don't, because it can be more profitable to focus on the negative. How important is it as you're driven to tell that holistic story?
1: For 49 years, Northern Agents has had this policy. We will not print negative news. If you want to see who got arrested, who did A, B, C, and D, go pick up the Hartford Courant or something else. There is no need to come to this space and read about that. When folks are messing up, yes, we need to have those conversations, but we also need to have conversations around what are the solutions and strategies to dealing with this? Our community is not without fault or without issues, but what are we doing to navigate and maneuver us around it? I grew up when Albany Avenue was nothing. Albany and Blue Hills Avenue were nothing but Black and West Indian businesses. Everywhere you went, there was someone who looked like you that not only owned the building, owned the business, was running the business. Families were running businesses. There was such a sense of legacy rolling through. And to grow up in a legacy family, now when you look at Albany Avenue and you look at Blue Hills, that is not the same. A lot of it has been gentrified and shifted. And it's such a different energetic feeling to that area. There was such a level of Black empowerment. That was our neighborhood. Now when you look at that neighborhood, it is full of food deserts. Folks don't want to bring major businesses there. Folks don't think we're deserving. Deserving of having the necessity of being able to get good food without a price hike, just good quality food. And that is alarming that that continues to be an issue. It's been at least 10 to 15 years of the North End not having a real grocery store. You got a bodega, you got a corner store, but you have nowhere to get actual fresh fruits and vegetables that will sustain you. And I think that that is just devastating. In comparison to what I grew up with and what so many of us in Hartford grew up and understood, even with the flaws and the faults of our city, there was such a level of cultural pride in coming here and creating something and sustaining us as a people.
2: You two are part of a legacy family. You're part of a legacy publication, but you're also part of a legacy industry. And we know that but for publications like The Crisis from the NAACP, but for publications of Ida B. Wells talking about lynching, but for the legacy of those black newspapers, black journalists, many people would not have known what was happening beyond their front yard, so to speak, what was happening around them to them, but also what was being created by them. Are there particular stories or themes that really stand out to you as you look back on that legacy to say, this is what we created? Is there a particular story?
1: So I grew up when the paper was shifting and focusing on the three strike law, the crack and powder, cocaine, medical marijuana being legalized in our paper in that era, chronicled the entire journey of those things. It chronicled folks' careers and advocacy and its embodiment and a time capsule of what was important and what continues to be important to us as we move forward. I also think the riots in the 70s and the riots that happened in Hartford that we've had images of and you know, our business was in the midst of some of those things, those stories are important. I think the most important stories to me are when we celebrate legacies. Legacies are not something that traditionally sustain more than two generations in BIPOC communities and BIPOC families, and any chance I have to celebrate legacy business, legacy institutions or individuals, I want to honor that and acknowledge that we cannot be here without the legacy and the shoulders that we stand on. We're Black women in a white male-dominated industry, and we're reminded of that daily. If it weren't for Ida B. Wells, if it wasn't for the Amsterdam News, if there wasn't for a John Allen, Sasha and would not be have the freedom to do journalism and black media the way we do without those folks. And so their stories are still just as vital and important to us. My fav- some of my favorite stories were during the COVID and the social justice movement and the black lives matter that was happening. And those are my favorite stories because you were seeing everyday bipoc people literally being turned into journalists because so much of the information was coming from everyday people with foot's on the on pavement and sharing and writing and even the investigative journalism that went into that that is credited to everyday folks and not necessarily people who were trained in journalism.
2: And dear, I want to bring you in because you are the growth manager and your sister talked a lot about legacy. And one of the challenges is how we continue legacy when there seem to be so many threats or attempts to undermine that. And I'm wondering from your perspective, given your role, given your sort of positioning in this space, what do you see as both the challenge for the future of the Black Press, the legacy of the Black Press, and also the thing that makes you excited about continuing that legacy,
3: I think pivoting and also opening up the door to allow your audience to help you revamp your your news your newspaper is, I think, one of the biggest challenges for that newsrooms are facing right now. I don't think it's going to be business centered moving forward. It's going to be people-centered. I think Northern Asians has done a really good job of staying connected with our readers, but I think diving in even more and letting go of more control to allow it to the community to lead your newsroom. And I think that that's where you begin to see it become a movement. And I think that that is the future of Black press. Um, I had the opportunity to sit down with other um, Black newsrooms and we were just kind of like talking about that and how um, the community is going to be like leading our decisions in the future and they were just talking about how hard that will be to kind of open the door
1: and let them kind of do that. I think another challenge that's faced is there aren't enough BIPOC journalists available. If you can read and write you can flow. Anyone can work with you and cultivate a deeper sense of journalism, a deeper sense of skills, set of skills. But we're we're struggling to find more of us in these arenas and in these spaces. And a lot of us are finding freelance writers to kind of fill in because there is there's a need for this, and it's a strong need, um, and not just in our newsroom and everyone's newsroom with the move of diversity and inclusion and not it just being on a surface level we have to equip these newsrooms with more people who can especially on a national level who can tell our stories authentically and not gaslight us not add to the narrative but just be true to what is the experience of us in this in this space
2: my very last question to you is simple and I'll start with you Indira what excites you about the future Of Black Press.
3: I guess just seeing us in a place where we are free to kind of explore and see it all kind of built out in the way we want it to be and just really seeing the community members kind of come in and just
1: fill in those spaces because the community is really where it's at. I'm really excited about the investigative journalism that's happening in Black Press right now. Um, There's so much environmental justice and activism that five years ago, we would not be centered on those conversations. I'm excited about the the lies and history that are being dismantled as a result of BIPOC journalists right now. I think as we look at the future, I'm really excited to see a newsroom that's unapologetically us. And they're not to be shamed to take up space and to be in these spaces. I'm really excited when I see more Black women like you and I in these rooms, what that really means and what that says. Because for decades, we were in the room, but we were quiet with a little notepad taking notes. We weren't allowed to have autonomy and share in the process. And so the level of independence that I see us moving into really, really excites me. And the magnitude of impact and us shifting to more community-centered conversations. I love it when someone has an aha moment when they read something from us or something we've said that speaks to the continual impact of us and what we've cultivated and what we continue to do. Northern Agents is a legacy institution and we want to continue to cultivate critical thinking and challenging ideas and concepts for everyday people Even if there's not an agreement in what is being shared, but at least you're walking away with more understanding of that narrative or what's happening. And so I'm just excited for the level of eye-opening that is happening within this, this industry and within our communities. It's so beautiful.
2: Sasha Allen Walton is Editor-in-Chief, and Indira Allen-Stevens is Growth Manager of North End Agents. It's Connecticut's largest and longest published African-American newspaper. To find out more about the publications we spoke with today, you can find links in our show notes. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.